All right, let's bow our heads. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for giving us another day in your marvelous grace to worship your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for making days like today times of peace and reflection, a time to look back upon our own lives and begin to make sense of it all through the lens of your word. We pray that our hearts remain open, humble, and true always, and that your love be understood more and more each and every day. We pray also that those unable to be with us this day are able to hear this message, for it is faith that heals. And as your precious word teaches us, faith comes from hearing, hearing the word of Christ. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Excuse me for a second. Got a little emotional there. Turn in your Bibles, please. Colossians 3.14. Colossians 3.14. We are on the Gospel, Salvation, Sanctification Part 63, Part 63, <clears throat> on a, a, a lighter and a darker note, and on, in one sense, uh, there's been a lot of um, interest in the lessons, uh, in the blogs. Uh, they tend to parallel each other after all. Uh, I've got that book coming out pretty soon. It's just on its last iteration on covert arrogance. Uh, there's some interest in that as well. But anytime something good goes on, anytime the light sort of turns brighter, uh, the darkness gets that much more irritated and agitated. And so there's been a whole host of attacks on uh, the ministry, on me personally. Um, and again, you don't need to worry about them. Everything's fine. But just know that um, we're going to have to stand firmer as a family even because as the attacks come, as I've taught you many times, Satan's, one of Satan's key objectives is to destroy family, whether it's your family or this one or any other thing we might call family. Uh, his objective is to divide and conquer because a house divided will not stand. So says Jesus Christ even. Um, so just keep that in mind that, that the church is always under pressure and there's always some kind of an attack going on. But just letting you know that it's been turned up a little bit. And it makes total sense because we're studying the Gospels, uh, salvation, and sanctification. We're on part 63. So this world is not very happy with us right now. That makes me very happy. <laughs> so anyways, Colossians 3.14, let's begin with some encouraging scripture. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. So simple, isn't it? Beyond all these things, put on love, the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule your hearts, and be thankful. Isn't that so simple? Yeah, it's beautiful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom and wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing 
with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's from Plusios Noikeo up here on the board in the Greek, richly dwell. It means extravagantly. Plusios means extravagantly or abundantly. And then plus Noikeo, uh, to live in or to be at home. So extravagantly or abundantly be at home. That's what richly dwell means. Let the word of Christ be extravagantly and abundantly at home in you. That's what richly dwell means. It means to have it live in you. Not just be on a shelf collecting dust. Not in some notebook so that you can academically point to it after. Not just as some remnant or some memory that you can point to in your own life. You know, that you know this or you understand that. No, this is to be at home. I mean, there's not, you know, what's more intimate than that? Than to be at home. So that's what richly dwell means. Extravagantly, abundantly to live in or to be at home. Parallels filled up to all the fullness of God in Ephesians 3.19 and the filling of the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. If you were to read the remainder of this passage and then uh, Ephesians 5.18 and forward, you'd see an absolute parallel. We studied this out in the Bible studies once not that long ago, uh, which really means that if you want to understand the filling of the Spirit, then you have to understand what letting the Word of Christ richly dwell in you means because they're basically the same thing. In context, refers to the Holy Scripture's rightful place as uh, dominating presence in your life. Uh, and we're going to compare that with Philippians 2.16 up here on the board. Holding fast the word of life. That's what richly dwelling of the word means. Holding fast the word of life. So that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. So Paul just states it differently in Philippians 2, holding fast the word of life. These concepts are all consistent with one another. The fullness of God filled with the Spirit, uh, you know, uh, letting the word of Christ richly dwell in you. These are all the same concept, folks. Do you see a pattern here? The whole idea is that you're all in. The whole idea is that this is your, quote, bread and butter. This is your life, what you're doing right now. This is the highlight of your day. This is what you're living for. You live for Christ. After all, we're under uh, spiritual baptism. We've already died and been buried with Him. Right? I have been crucified with Christ, as Paul in Galatians. So that's our attitude, that this is our life now. This word, uh, this thing that we're doing even right now, uh, not just collecting academic artifacts, but actually understanding what the spiritual life is what it means to be sanctified, not just learn the word sanctification and stake a claim to it. Again, verse 16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is an attitude, folks. This is a way of life. Verse 17, Whatever you do, In word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. So in other words, whatever you do, word, deed, whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. This is a lifestyle, folks. This is what Paul's getting at in Colossians 3. It's why I love Colossians 3 as a whole. Colossians 3.1 says, Keep your eyes up on the things above, right? Not on the things on the earth. 
It's a wonderful passage. If you ever want to be encouraged, read Colossians 3, read Philippians 3, read Ephesians 3. Uh, 3 is a good number, I guess, huh? So the question of being filled is a common one. I was thinking about this. Why all this activity as of late? So we're on sanctification, right? So why not, why not all the fancy words on sanctification? Why not all the doctrine of sanctification proper? Why not all the theology? Because you know what? First of all, I know most of you understand most of the theology. You've probably seen it somewhere in your career, your academic careers already. And second of all, more importantly, saying this is real. This is practical sanctification. We're no, we're no longer talking about the things you didn't even know happened, like at positional sanctification. You know, we're not talking about the judicial aspects of things. We're talking about your life. You want to talk about experiential sanctification? Let's talk about life. And let's make it real. That's why the word practical keeps coming up. So this question of being filled is a common one. As Colossians 3.16-17 implies, being filled implies doing things, word or deed, in the name of the Lord Jesus. And I think most people have a genuine concern regarding their personal desire to do things that are pleasing to God. I do believe that. I believe that, you know, for the most part, everyone in here, as far as I know, has that desire to do things that are pleasing to God. Not even for religious reasons, but for well-intentioned arguably humble reasons. And those people, the ones who seek that way, to them, God delivers the answers. And I was thinking further, well, what does that mean? Well, reflect on this. We are spiritual creatures that have been made new in Christ Jesus. That's what has happened to us at salvation. We were Born again, made new, new creatures, however you'd like to look at it, whatever language you'd like to choose. It's all pointing to the same thing. So something happened at positional sanctification. Something happened when you were saved. You don't know all those things. What a glorious day it was for each of us. The interesting thing about that day is that when the gavel came down in heaven and the angels rejoiced with yet another saved soul, we humans hardly understood what just happened. That's the fact. We were saved, but we didn't really understand the whole of it. Other than being so very grateful that it did happen, that we had found our Savior and had been redeemed, it isn't until afterwards, as we continue to learn the Word of God, that we realize there's so much more, just as the Word describes we know there's so much more because the Word says there's so much more. 1 Corinthians 2.9, But just as it is written, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Strictly speaking, it's not our fault as individuals that we are born this way. Strictly speaking. We might point back to the garden and understand the judicial aspects of the fall and understand such passages as this, Romans 5.14. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. So we can understand things like that, but we don't actually have wisdom. We don't have convictions. We're not 
moved by them until we continue to learn the Word of God and are sanctified. And this is something that happens progressively over time. It's not something that we're given. This kind of insight, this clearer lens, if you'd like to think of it that way, is not available to us at the point of salvation. So, we are born this way. And it's not necessarily our fault. But now we're saved. 1 Corinthians 15.22 For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Well, that's wonderful news. Maybe that's why we call it the good news, which is the gospel. (laughs) That's wonderful news. But what does it mean? A lot of Christians say, that's wonderful, I'm saved, I'll see you in heaven, I'm back to my old life. And it's the antithesis. It's very dangerous, too, because as we started off this entire series, those people might have a bigger problem. They might not even be saved in the first place, but they're running as if they were. And that's a very dangerous proposition. But we won't go back and revisit all of that. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. The issue the Spirit's making here is that it takes us a lifetime to realize even a portion of all that was accomplished on the cross. You don't know everything. You're not, how much more grateful are you now than you were the day you were saved? Some of you, you were little kids even. Some of you were young adults. And that was years and years ago. How much more grateful are you now? Dokimai and the proof of your faith, 1 Peter 1.7, now that you've actually lived a little and seen the grace of God in action in your life. How much more grateful now, how much more do you love every, every extra little thing, however you'd like, a nugget of love that you see as you live, as a result of learning the Word of God, as a result of being sanctified. How much more grateful are you now than you were before? Well, that's a result of being sanctified. So I guess there really is a practical aspect of all this. So therein lies the crux of what we've been studying out as experiential sanctification. Some theologians like to call it progressive sanctification. You can call it whatever you want as long as you understand that God's sanctifying you in time. That is His intent. Speaking of time, as the old secular proverb goes, you know, time is of the essence. But in this case, we aren't able to rush anything since the times and epochs in our lives are governed by the sovereign God. So, this takes us right back to the original point this morning. That is that believers are rightly concerned about doing God's will in time. So we have this motivating factor to do God's will, especially if we're humble, obviously. But then we have this construct of time. And what the Word tells us is, as we grow up, as we're sanctified, we shall do more of His will in time. So there's a progression to the spiritual life. You don't, you're not born again into what we might dub spiritual maturity. It takes time to grow up, to mature. Paul writes about that to the Corinthians. So therein lies the connective tissue, then, between this concept and sanctification, this desire to do God's will in time. And remember what we just saw, whatever you do in word or deed, do in His name. 
So therein lies the connective tissue between this concept and sanctification. For they are intrinsically related, as we'll continue to see in our studies. In other words, sanctification is a very practical issue when one considers the experiential phase of things. Stated more Socratically, how does a sentient, spiritual creature please their creator? How does a sentient, spiritual creature please their creator? Sentient just means ability to make decisions, have a morality, etc., etc. How do we, in other words, spiritual creatures, please our creator? That's the big question. I know I want to. I know probably most days you want to, unless you're in a mood, right? Most days you want to, and it's, it's a humble thing to want to do the will of God, to, to please the one even that saved you. It's an issue of gratitude. It's an issue of thankfulness. Uh, that's our lives. So how do we do that? How does it, spirituality come into view? For starters, we know from reams of pages in the Bible that the religious folks got it all wrong. The religious folks got it all wrong. So says Jesus himself. And I hope you understand, when I say religion, this is a religion, it's a proper religion. I'm talking about the religion in the world. The majority of quote-unquote religion is horrific. It's an abomination. It has really nothing to do with Jesus Christ at all. It has everything to do with bondage. So that's what I'm talking about. I hope you understand that. So for starters, we know from reams of pages in the Bible that religious folks got it all wrong. So says Jesus himself. He said this, you serpents, Matthew 23, 33. These, uh, you know, everybody says, I heard some moron last night say, I can't remember where it was, I think it was on, that's why I don't watch television. Oh, yeah, it was on television. Oh, you know, Jesus is all about love, and it doesn't, because he's all about love, we shouldn't be making distinctions about this religion or that religion. We should all just basically love each other. And I said, are you kidding me? Who said that then? No, seriously, who said that? Jesus said that. He said, you serpents, you brood of vipers, where's the love? It's disgusting what people have made, people have made Jesus Christ in this pasty little, wimpy little pushover of a man. And he was literally the exact opposite. If that was him, he would have never made it physically or emotionally to the cross. Because he would have pooped out like most people would have. This guy was tough as nails was he more loving than any other human being in history yep but was he also the toughest man to ever live indeed he was so i'm thinking you don't want really want to scrap with jesus i'm thinking he loves but maybe the love that he has is very different than the moron was talking about on television last night that's not love that's gross That's what Satan wants you to adopt as love. Some disgusting, wimpy little thing. Jesus said that. Integrity, as I've taught, I don't know, probably five years ago, responds to situations regardless. Regardless. If someone comes at it in a godly manner, then there's a godly, sort of loving, gracious response. If someone tries to tip over the apple pot from an ungodly perspective, you get that. 
And that's no less a loving individual. Matter of fact, it substantiates his love for the world. People need to realize that. And some theologians will call Jesus Christ straight out a judgment preacher. Says, listen, you don't listen to my words, you guys are going to hell. You don't listen to what I'm saying, you don't want to accept me, bye-bye. He didn't really say that. David Spade said that in a Saturday Night Live skit, right, on a plane. He doesn't really say bye-bye, but it'd be funny if he did. Just saying. Jesus Christ was a judgment preacher. Not just a judgment preacher, but a judgment preacher. People have his love all kinds of warped. And it's grotesque. And there's a reason why there's a grotesque gospel that we fought tooth and nail the first 20 hours of this series on, against. It's because there's some pathetic other Jesus. You know, like Paul said, another Jesus from another spirit, you know, in Scripture. Remember that verse I've taught you on many times? Yeah, there's another Jesus out there, but it's not this one. See, people don't want this one, because this one holds people's noses to the grindstone. It says, if you don't want it my way, he says, listen, if you don't want it my I wrote a book on that called The Gospel of Jesus Christ, The Boat Analogy. If you're not willing to get into this boat under my conditions, you're not getting in. So Matthew 23, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? That's what he had to say about the religious people in his day, the self-righteous ones, the ones that were putting a yoke of slavery on others that they couldn't even uphold. So says the word of God. Religion sows the seed of death in the soul. It's catastrophic for unbelievers and terribly frustrating for believers. So scripture reveals that, quote, doing God's will cannot be a religious affair, at least not that type. Not at all. For that is fleshly, bearing counterfeit fruit that only looks good, but inwardly is rotten to the core. And so says Jesus himself again. You know, Mr. Lovey-Dovey. I'm being facetious. Luke 6.43 For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. In other words, if you don't have it right, you're going to produce bad fruit. That bad fruit may look good on the outside, but as soon as you take a big old bite, there's a worm in there and it's rotten. And it leads to death. So the question on the table remains for the well-intentioned believer who is seeking truth and deliverance. How does a sentient spiritual creature please their creator? The answer, as the Spirit's been pointing out, is our confident expectation that God's Spirit will direct us perfectly, reminding us of the things that we've learned in the Word of God. This is why it's so important. I know I sound like a broken record, but it's so important that you get to class, that you get these lessons so that the God, God the Holy Spirit, has the materials. Right? I always use the construction site example. Look, you've got the ultimate master builder waiting for you on site. If you show up with no raw materials, what's he got to work with? If you never pick up the Word of God, how's he going to convict you with anything? Jesus loves me. Let's just sing Jesus loves me until we're blue in the face. Jesus loves me. Yeah, we know. But the same Jesus said, 
Get the word of God, will you? So the answer, as the Spirit's been pointing out, is our confident expectation that God's Spirit will direct us perfectly, reminding us of the things that we've learned in the Word of God. And if and that if we do happen to have doubts, any doubts, we ought to take that as a reason to double down. If you're doubting your faith, then double down on the basics. The basics are very easy. Learn the Word of God. Come to class. This is grace. In other words, take all the grace he's given you. What's the grace he's given you? Everything that comes from this ministry and that book that's open in front of you. For starters, those are the basics. Come here, let the bald guy direct you. That's a spiritual gift. Point you in this direction, point you in that direction. And go home and read your Bibles faithfully. If you don't do those things, what do you expect? What do you expect? That person ought not to expect anything. Because they're dipsukos. If you're not taking in the word of God, you're taking in the word of the world. You're watching television, or you're going to work, and you listen to all the morons at work. Right? <laughs> and, you know, that's what, you know, the other spirits, and if you think there aren't, you know, these, these attacks that I alluded to at the beginning of class, what do you think they are? How many fiery dots do you think this head gets? That's why I don't have hair. It burns my hair off. So many fiery darts. <laughs> I'm serious. How many fiery dots do you think I get? I get stuff. I'm like, where did that, that even come from? Where did that? I had a, the worst discussion with myself on the drive-in for no apparent reason. It's Sunday morning. I'm coming to teach. I'm like, yeah, I get to teach. All of a sudden, I'm off in some tangent, cursing something or somebody. Having it, I'm like, I'm like, what's wrong with you? You're going to church to teach the word of God. What's your problem? And then I stopped. And you know, what I said, as I was driving, I said, Lord, these demons are nasty. I said, they've been throwing fiery dots. This stuff isn't coming from me. And I said, Lord, on your, on your merits, cast them off. Whew. All I had to do was stop and ask him. You have the power to stop this. I don't. And he stopped it. And here I am. In a gay old mood. Woohoo! <laughs> hey, you want practicality? Here it is, right? But you've got to learn the Word of God, folks. And God's Spirit is there to remind you, to teach you. He's our true mentor and teacher. Remember that. I'm a tour guide. He's the truth. So if we do have any doubts, we ought to take that as a reason to double down on the basics, learning the Word of God, praying. How often does the Bible talk about praying? Well, how often do you pray? Hmm. Everybody's like... Pray. But don't shrink away. If you have doubts, the worst thing you can do is start shrinking away from the basics. As we've been taught multiple times in the past, these convictions about living the spiritual life, that's that Greek word, eusebia, as spiritual beings are from the Spirit. Again, these convictions about living the spiritual life as spiritual beings are from the Spirit. Do you see a pattern in that language? You should, for true spirituality is a supernatural thing, not a religious artifact or achievement. True spirituality is a supernatural thing, not a religious artifact or achievement. 
We could be literally sitting on a bump on a log. And if that were God's will for us, then the Spirit would be encouraging us to be still. Literally. That's, you know, guys, I don't know about you all, but I t- I'm type A kind of, so. <laughs> See, I let her stand up, and now she's throwing stones at me. She's like, yeah, you're type A, that's right. You know how it is to live with you? <laughs> Where was I? Oh, I know what it is. When he says be still, for guys like me, that's hard. Art Morton, same thing. Guy's got half a foot on one leg. Try to get him to sit still. Nope. Every time I go over there, Jane, right? Where's Art? He's out in the back, throwing stuff around, hobbling. Because <laughs> he can't sit still. But God's probably saying what he says to me. Hey, will you just be still for a little bit? I need to heal you. You know, we, you know, I did this on purpose for a little long time, maybe. I don't know. But if that's God's will, then the Spirit will convict us to sit still. And when we begin adopting that kind of perspective, all the pressure to strive and, quote, do this or that, to please God, it dissipates. If we just go back to the basics, if we just remember why we're here, doing this wonderful, magnificent thing, why we pick up our Bibles on a regular basis, why we pray, Life becomes a lot easier. As we've learned in the past, the key to the spiritual life is humility. A humility that first surrenders to God and then seeks His counsel, His word, and His Spirit's convictions at every turn in life. If we aren't hearing Him in the moment, then we need to seek Him all the more. Taking private time to pray Go to Philippians 4.6. Philippians 4.6. If we aren't quote-unquote hearing Him in the moment, then we need to seek Him all the more, taking private time to pray. Philippians 4.6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Not some things, not the things that you deem as a human being are important enough to go to the throne of grace. Everything. That's not a typo. Everything. That verse is actually enough fodder for months of lessons, folks. I could go for months on Philippians 4.6, easily. Do a whole series on Philippians 4.6, easily. Read it slowly and then let it sink in. In everything, that right there is enough. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then, as he promises, as a practical outcome of experiential sanctification, we have verse 7. Look at this. What happens when you do that? What happens when you turn to him for everything in an attitude of gratitude? What happens when you do that? Look at verse 7. 
and the peace of God. This is the antithesis of anxiety, which was in the previous verse. And the peace of God, which surpasses all human comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You're all set. You're all set then. See, the formula to the spiritual life is not difficult. It's just an issue of humility. Do you want to accept what the Word of God says? Or do you want to say, well, not everything because I kind of have a little control problem. I want at least 5% from me. Because I don't trust God with this 5%. I trust Him in 95% of my life, but this 5%, I'm so in love with my little religious shrine over here, the little me, let's call it a little me area, I don't want to ask God for that stuff. Matter of fact, I've cordoned them off, which is silly, but you know what I mean. I've sort of kept that to myself. Well, that's not everything then, is it? You've already blown the the case for verse 7. So verse 7 now is suspect. Not 90? All right, all right, I'll go 99%. Is that better? No, 100%. Everything. Then you'll get the peace that you're looking for for a moment. Anxiety, even to the person who's diligently seeking truth, is not from God. Anxiety is just another name for fear. And as we know from Scripture, 1 John 4.18, there is no fear. For example, anxiety. Anxiety is just fear. What? Fear of what? I don't know. Missing out? Whatever, you, whatever it is. It's just fear. There is no fear, no anxiety in love. But perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. So we just string this a little bit together. You say, okay, so if I'm humble in everything, then I get the peace of God. If I'm arrogant, uh uh-oh. So it's no longer everything, it's most things or even something. To that degree, fear seeps in. And then what? Punishment. So, string the two ends together. If you're arrogant, you're punished. Ta-da! See? You want to be arrogant? You want to take the wheel from God? Go for it. You're going to crash into a tree, and you're going to be sore. You're going to end up like this. Right? That's it. This is not hard, folks. You want to struggle with God for the wheel? Go for it. You end up with some broken fingers and some other bruises and some scrapes. What the Spirit's saying is simple, fundamental even. It's that if we seek Him, we will find Him. Scripture assures us. And if we find Him because He is love, 1 John 4, 8, you know what we find? Love. If we seek God, we find love. And as 1 John 4, 18 just said, there is no fear or anxiety in love. So if you're an anxious person, do you know what you do? Do I have to string it together? If you're an anxious type person... You look for Him. You spend your time with Him. You fellowship as much as often with Him. He is the Logos after all. Don't believe me? Read uh, John 1.14. Okay? He is the Word. So the basics are really the answer to the spiritual life. Some might look at a guy falsely, ridiculously, a guy like myself, and say, what's his secret? Does God give him like extra juice or something? Does God give him some extra juju so he, has, he can under... That's technical Greek. So, so he can understand more stuff? Is there something special about this guy? Oh, it must be the spiritual gift. It's not. You know what it is? I'm a basics kind of guy. 
I keep going back to the basics. Every time I get off, I say, I need to go back to the basics. And then I recollect myself. And I find myself going, oh, that, no wonder what he, Paul said, from faith to faith. No wonder why the anchor is the gospel itself. No wonder why we should never stray too far from that one truth. Look at that. That's cool, isn't it? I didn't even mean to do it. They just both went. It's the little things. Never stray. I mean, this is not hard. That's the perversion of religion. Religion likes to make things hard. Why? Because the harder it gets, the more stratification there is. And then guess what happens? Now things like intellect become the issue instead of God. That's what religion does. Let's overcomplicate everything so there can be some stratification. Hmm. But the spiritual life is not difficult at all, folks. It's very practical. That's why I'm calling it practical sanctification. Shedding fear and anxiety may be better thought of as leaving behind, quote-unquote, rather than, quote, pushing away through exertion. Leaving behind versus pushing away through exertion. In other words, get off of me versus just leaving you behind. Two different exercises, two different perspectives. One's wrestling with something they can't win in their own power. The other one just goes, I'm going to turn to Jesus and that thing's just going to fall away. What does Scripture say? It says, resist the devil and he will what? Flee from you. It doesn't say struggle with him. You try struggling with him, you're going to lose. Even who is uh, the archangel uh, Michael? It was Michael that gave it. I think it was Michael. So I, I look, in the Lord, I, I'm not going to deal with you head to head to Satan. So why would we deal with things that we don't have power to be able to deal with? We don't wrestle with things that are much more powerful than us, right? Okay, a 3,000-pound fully grown bull comes at you. You're going to wrestle with it or are you going to run? I'm just kidding. <laughs> you get out of there, right? You're not going to try to wrestle that thing to the ground. Anthony might. And he might actually do it. But the rest of us can't. What's the point? Leaving behind versus pushing away through exertion. Two different perspectives. To move towards love, a.k.a. God, God is love, 1 John 4, 8, is to be sanctified. So this is different then. This is not, I need to be more religious to be set apart. I need to do more in my own power regarding sin even to be set apart. That's not what the word teaches us at all. It means we seek Him and we find Him. He is love. And there is no fear in love. If you get to love, then this has been cast off. You didn't have to exert the casting off. You didn't have to struggle with that thing. Last time I checked, Jesus already overcame death. He's the one with the keys. So you've got to just find Him. That's a different mindset. Religion says, focus on struggling this thing. The truth says, turn to Christ and all that stuff goes away. That's the difference between religious form of sanctification, which is a counterfeit, and true sanctification that the Bible talks about. This is bondage, this is grace. This is arrogance, this is humility. So you should be right now going, 
That's called peace. You know peace in verse 7 that we just saw? In everything give thanks. In everything? Yeah. Philippians 3. Oh, hold on. I didn't even finish that principle. I got so riled up. To move towards God, a.k.a. God, or to, to move towards love, God is love, is to be sanctified. That person is focused on the prize in front, not the rubble behind. It's just a perspective issue. Just a perspective issue. You've got to think about it that way. Stop training yourself to look at all your sins, your past sins, your present sins. Stop focusing on trying to overcome with your own human power. You're not going to do it. Haven't you figured that out yet, dummy? You're not going to do it. So there must be a better way. There is a better way. It's called God's way. And it's just an issue of perspective. Philippians 3, 13 to 14. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Forgetting what lies behind. Those of you who are guilt-ridden, you need to think of Paul's words here. You didn't do worse than Paul did. I don't know if I have any convicted murderers in here, but Paul was a murderer. So you didn't do worse than Paul, most likely. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the perspective. My eyes are on the prize. All kinds of garbage back here. Satan's back there with symbols. Ding, ding, ding. I remember you. Turn around. Turn around. You're a sinner. That's right, I am. That's why I've got to keep focusing on Christ, because this is bad behind me. That's all Paul's saying. And the world is, tries to get you to go back to where you were, back to the slave market of sin. And that's not what you've been delivered. You've been paid for. You've re- been redeemed, right, from the slave market of sin. With his life, that's the lie. Satan says, oh, no, that was incomplete. There's still some work you need to do. That's what religion does. To press on this way means that the very foundation of our spiritual life is progressively grounded in love. It's progressively grounded in love. This certainly relates back to our previous passage, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Paul used the Greek word heritzo in Ephesians 3 to describe this phenomenon up here on the board. Heritzo in the Greek translates rooted, means to take root, to plant, to firmly establish to cause a person to be thoroughly grounded. Paul used this word, to take root, to plant, to firmly establish, to cause a person to be thoroughly grounded. We noted this word, or we note this word, alongside a couple of other key phrases in our previous study. Go to Ephesians 3.17. This is a verse we spent a little time on, but now he's got us focused on the tail end of the verse. Ephesians 3.17. This is what sanctification means, folks. Ephesians 3.17 So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love. Rooted, we just saw, was heritzo-o. Paul used the Greek word actually translated for grounded as well, which is up here on the board. board. It's the mulet-e-o-o means to lay a foundation of, to found metaphorically, to make stable, to establish. 
So do you want peace? Do you want to be established? Do you want to be grounded? This is what Paul's getting at. So that, the, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's how you become grounded. That obviously echoes of what we just read in Colossians 3. Verse 17 again. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses, that's that Greek word, hooperbalo, it means literally to transcend, to know the love of Christ, that's God's love, of course it is, which surpasses, transcends knowledge, that you may be filled up, Greek word pleuroo, to all the fullness of God, up here on the board, filled up to the fullness of God. Compared with the fullness of Christ in verse 413, we did this work this past week, and the fullness of the Spirit in verse 518. Same author, same basic language, same Greek words. These things are all related. On the fullness of God, J. Vernon McGee writes, Christ was thus filled. In proportion to our comprehension of the love of Christ, we shall be filled with all the fullness of God. If you ever forget what love is, remember the cross. Go back to the basics. If you ever forget how much he loved you, go back to the cross. You don't need much more evidence than that, do you? I mean, what more can a person do other than to die for you? Ephesians 3.19 And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So all he's trying to do is take you to love. Seek me, you'll find me. You find me, God says, you'll find me through my Son. That's why Christ is here. To know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, including, for example, sanctify us according to the power, dunamis, that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's one of those mind-blowing passages. That's why we spend the time we do on those passages. That's why we go Scripture to Scripture. Philippians 3, Colossians 3, Ephesians 3. These things all are hovering around the same basic issue. That we're to be filled with the Spirit. The fullness of God. The fullness of Christ. It's all the same thing. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell in you. Be filled with the Spirit, otherwise it's dissipation. Right? You get to the fullness of God through Christ. These are all the same thing. It's an all-in statement. That's what he's saying. You want to cast off the anxiety? There's no fear in love. There's no anxiety in love. So then find Christ. Seek Christ. You'll find His love, and you're not anxious anymore. It's all the same thing, folks. It's not a difficult thing. But you've got to love the Word because over and over it just drives these things home if you're willing to seek Him. This past week we spent a good amount of time surveying Scripture for encouragement's sake, and hopefully you're encouraged by now even in this lesson. We synthesized four points from multiple passages. Point one, whatever is not from faith is sin. Romans 14, 23. Point two, 
Faith is a grace gift, Romans 12, 3, Ephesians 2, 8.3. Every gift from God is perfect, James 1, 17. And then point four, God's gifts are the seeds of good fruit, for example, encouragement, James 3, 17 to 18. Our conclusion then up here on the board was this. You have every reason under heaven to be encouraged. Not just about where you're going, ultimate sanctification, but where he's taking you right now. A reference to experiential sanctification. You have every reason under heaven to be encouraged. Why? We say so on the merits of Scripture itself. Not because the bald guy's telling you, oh, you should be encouraged. Put your faith in me. I don't want your faith in me. I want your faith in truth. I want your faith in Scripture. Something that you can turn to if I died tomorrow. I mean, this could get infected and I could be done. This is how serious this is. Life-threatening. I could be gone tomorrow. <laughs> right? It's true. I mean, you know. I don't want you to be encouraged with a man. That's what religion teaches you. Other than Jesus Christ, of course. The man. So you have every reason to be encouraged. It's right in front of you. And it's in you. He's in you. Jesus told his disciples in Mark eleven forty two to have faith in God. Well, one reason is that he knew that he'd be leaving them behind and that they'd be persecuted just like we are to this day. Perseverance in the face of adversity requires something we like to call out as courage. That was another key word from this past week, courage. But as Scripture has taught us, courage is really just applied faith. That's all real courage is. I mean, you have to have faith. Nobody's going to stand up to Goliath unless they have faith. And whatever, whoever Goliath, I think I wrote a blog on this, whoever Goliath or whatever Goliath is in your life, you're not going to stand up to that person or thing unless you have faith of the, in the outcome, in the means to be able to do it. So courage is really just faith applied. Courage is really just another word for faith applied. Therefore, to be encouraged means to inspire one's faith in the direction of doing righteously. Romans 10, 17, how? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. What's the Spirit saying? Obviously, he's saying if you want more courage, then you've got to have more faith. If you're feeling weak and doubtful, what did we say at the beginning of class? Then go back to the word. Go to him in prayer. You're the one who's been drifting. And you know who you are. If you're drifting... It's exactly what the Bible says. It's exactly what happens every single time. Satan's going to lead you on for a little while. The world's going to lead you away for a little while. Next thing you know, you're miserable, and you're saying, why am I miserable? Oh, that's right. I've been bailing out of the basics to the spiritual life. What do I expect? I'm a double-minded train wreck. What do I expect? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. The logical conclusion is that if you want more courage, then you must get more of the word. It's that simple. God sanctifies us via the word. Go to John 17, 17. Don't believe me? Maybe you'll believe Jesus. You want to leave that stuff behind, the stuff that's been haunting you, the religious life, the self-life, 
the anxiety, the worries. You want to leave that stuff behind? Well, you need more of the Word. I didn't say that. Jesus prayed for it. John 17, 17, very simply, sanctify them. There's our topic, by the way, sanctify. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You want to be sanctified? You've got to have the word. Doing what you're doing right now. Reading your own Bibles. Faith comes from hearing. Hearing what? The word of Christ. You've got to take it in. There's nothing else to say on the topic. If you don't take it in, you're going to have spiritual problems. You're going to be anxious. You're going to be worried. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You're going to be discouraged. How about that? Again, if you want more courage, then you must get more of the word up here on the board. More on courage as applied faith. Faith comes from the word imparted. We just read that. The Holy Spirit will convict you of the authenticity of the word so as to wash away any doubts. The faithful are the courageous. You always say, wow, that that guy, that girl, she's so, oh, he's so courageous. They always seem to have so much like, you know, vinegar. I don't want to say the other one. P and V. Okay? Only older people are like, yeah. Andrew's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> the faithful are the courageous. It's not, look, there's nothing special about them other than what's been given to them. What made David special was he had faith. And he, most assuredly, in his humility, attributed that faith to God. He said, this is a gift. So David's a perfect example in the face of Goliath. This was his attitude, 1 Samuel 17, 32. David said to Saul, the king, little shepherd boy, the nobody, with all the faith, said to King Saul, Let no man's heart fail on account of him, Goliath. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Gotta love it. So you might say, given the rank differences between the king and the lowly shepherd boy, courage has no rank. Courage has no rank. I mean, think about about even little kids. Sometimes the things we see them do, they have unbridled faith. And they have courage to say and do things that most adults would cringe at. Why is that? Because their faith is pure. You know, like the faith that bounced on Jesus' knee when he said, you have the faith of a child. Why do you say that? Because their faith is pure and yours isn't. Or maybe it isn't. Another wonderful example besides David was Elihu in terms of courage having no rank. The younger speaking up after the older failed. Elihu, Elihu, the youngest of the five men identified as gathered together in the book of Job, is another great example. Go to Job 32.1. Here's an old friend. We did a 63-part series on this years ago. Doctrine of Suffering. Job 32.1. So the context here, if you understand, if you remember the book, is that Job and his three buddies, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, were his buddies. They were going back and forth. And in chapter 32, we have the introduction of Elihu, the youngest. 
who's been uh, presumably quiet because of respect, out of respect for his elders, which is a good thing, because that's what the Bible says. We should respect our elders. But to the point on the board, courage has no rank. If the elders are wrong, the elders are wrong. And, but you have to hear them out first. And so out of respect, that's the context. Elihu was sort of hanging back while these four people bickered, and then he came in. He was tired of it. He said, that's it. So verse 32, 1. Then these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakal, the Buzite, of the family of Ram, burned. Against Job his anger burned because he justified himself before God. And his anger, bur- his anger burned against his three friends because they had found no answer and yet had com- condemned Job. Now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were years older than he. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, his anger burned. So Elihu, the son of Barako, the Buzite, spoke out and said, I am young in years and you are old. Therefore I was shy and afraid to tell you what I think. I thought age should speak and increased years should teach wisdom. But it is a spirit in a man, in man and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. The abundant in years may not be wise nor may elders understand justice. So I say, listen to me, I too will tell what I think. Behold, I waited for your words, I listened to your reasonings, while you pondered what to say. I even paid close attention to you. Indeed, there was no one who refuted Job, not one of you who answered his words. Do not say we have found wisdom, God will rout him, not man. For he has not arranged his words against me, nor will I reply to him with your arguments. They are dismayed. They no longer answer. Words have failed them. Shall I wait because they do not speak, because they stop and no longer answer? I too will answer my share. I also will tell my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly is like unvented wine, like new wineskins it is about to burst. Let me speak that I may get relief. Let me open my lips and answer. Let me now be partial to no one, nor flatter any man. For I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. However, now Job, please hear my speech and listen to all my words. Behold now, I open my mouth. My tongue in my mouth speaks. My words are from the uprightness of my heart. And my lips speak knowledge sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Refute me if you can. Array yourselves before me. Take your stand. Behold, I belong to God like you. I too have been formed out of the clay. Booyah. No? Thank you, DJ. DJ's always good for a golf clap. What do you get out of that? That's... Right there. Courage has no rank. He did the right thing. He waited, but he said, listen, you guys mucked the whole thing up. You guys are just just arguing like a bunch of little hens. Let's get this thing right. And he really did. If you continue reading, you might do that in your own time. But he really did put these guys in their place. He really did say a lot of wonderful things as we studied out years ago. But it was the young guy. It was the young one who was seeing clearly in humility. 
He wasn't saying I'm any better than you. He's saying I'm just speaking from the uprightness of my own heart. You guys are all over the map. Again, our sister principles being amplified here are these. Courage is faith applied. Faith comes from the word imparted. The Holy Spirit will convict you of the authenticity of the word so as to wash away any doubts. The faithful are the courageous. And then, of course, courage has no rank. Those are the sister principles that we just read Job for to amplify. Now, courage is a wonderful thing to be equipped with, biblical even. Ephesians 6 speaks in greater detail, but here's verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. That takes a certain courage, but courage is really just faith applied. As wonderful as courage is, though, technically, it's not the pinnacle of the spiritual life. It's a sound show of faith, which is paramount if we are to ever witness to others. But there's a much more powerful thing to exhibit as a believer, something that stands behind most acts of true courage. Go to 1 Corinthians 13, 13. You want to know what stands behind most acts of true courage? I'd argue all of them. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. We know that courage is really just faith applied. First Corinthians 13, 13. This is it. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is what? Love. Love. Move towards God, you move towards love. God is love. The greatest of these is love. You want to jettison all the anxiety, the worry, the concerns. You want to stop struggling with all your sins and your past and your ridiculousness from years ago. Leave it behind. Seek Him. You'll find Him. You'll find love. The greatest of these is love. That's the same direction, my friends, as sanctification. If you're being sanctified, you're being set apart to God's love. This past week, we also synthesized the following on the topic of love. We looked at multiple passages. I'm not going to review them here. What is love? God is love, 1 John 4. God gave His Son, John 3.16. John is not, uh, excuse me, love is not characterized by romance. It is primitively selfless and giving. And so what the Spirit said here is, wait a minute, don't get all gushy on me. Don't think this love that we're talking about in the Bible is this romantic little, oh, you know, something you find in some romance novel. Let me just gush all over Jesus. Jesus loves me. No, Jesus is the one who said, you brood of vipers. So you've got to understand the fullness of God through Christ Jesus, who said words like that, but also bounced young children on his knee and said, have faith as a child. So you have to understand what love is in the first place. And how do you get that? The Word of God. We're not emotional basket cases, folks. We have emotions, but there's got to be truth behind those things. That's very important, but we're not going to get into that any further. Love produces desires in us that we cannot even comprehend or articulate fully. 
But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, the greatest of these is love. So what we're fighting in the background is the human tendency to make love, even for a studious student word of God, something academic. And then that person becomes cold. I might say cold-hearted. And their motivation is never true because they're cold. They're vapid. They're empty. They have definitions and they have whatever, you know, their notebooks might be full of Greek words even, but they don't have that love yet. Why? Probably because they're religious on the inside. They're still struggling with sin. They don't get the change of perspective yet. They're not actually seeking God. They're seeking to overcome sin on their own. They're fighting the wrong battle, which is why those people are pretty easy to call to see. They're anxious, they're worrisome, they're typically miserable. A lot of them have, um, you know, uh, crutches they use, whether it's, you know, alcohol. or the, I'm not blaming it. I'm just saying a lot of things that go into this realm, this issue over here. They have commitment issues. They have all kinds of problems because of the wrong perspective. But we know that if we seek God, we find Him. To net out our studies before we close, we might say this. There is no sanctification in the absence of love. There is no sanctification in the absence of love. If you say to yourself, you know, God doesn't love me because I'm a wretch. Well, you're an idiot. Because God even loves the unbelievers. For God so loved the world, He gave His Son. That was believers and unbelievers in view. So you're arrogant. You're calling God a liar. If you say, I'm too wretched for God to love me, you're arrogant. That's what my book is about, by the way. We call that covert arrogance. Oh, sure, you're not the one going, oh. No, you're the one going, oh, I'm just so wretched, God doesn't even love me. Shut up. That's arrogance. Because God is a liar otherwise. You're basically calling God a liar to his face, in his presence, if you think that. Now, some... It's tough, right? People, oh, how do you kick somebody that's down? I'm not kicking some. This is about deliverance. This is about people actually seeing the truth. Covert arrogance. Ooh, what a nasty, nasty little thing it is. So much harder to root out in a person's soul. Because you're called cruel for picking that little nerve. I'm not cruel. I'm, I'm, I love you guys. That's the love of Christ which was in full view when he said, you brood of vipers. So, there is no sanctification in the absence of love. The implications of this reality run far and deep, and some of you need to really reflect on the love that exists in your soul. Let's get serious, and I've got to pick a spot to close, because Don's looking at me funny. He's like, let's just get this over with. I thought I was getting, uh, you know, that's what's happening today. Do this thing. (laughs) So seriously, as we prepare to close, ask yourself, reflect on your own love today. Not the gushy little thing, so cut it out. Don't go home and read a romance novel and say, I got it. Is it godly? Is it selfless or selfish? Does it sow freedom? or bondage in your life and others? Is your love towards others encouraging or discouraging? 
Does it seek to build up or tear down? Does it rejoice or is it jealous? Again, to highlight Paul's simple conclusion, verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 13, but now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is something the Bible teaches us about, but the reality is that even an unbeliever can read the words in the Bible. Something must hooperbalo, something must transcend knowledge for it to be spiritual. And God's love truly does transcend the likes of unbelievers. The reason for all of this is to understand that unlike positional sanctification things, which is primarily a judicial issue, experiential sanctification is something we can relate to at the most intimate places in our souls, especially now. As we are set apart for God's purposes and time, not only do we grow in knowledge, but we also grow in our affection for Him. And I want you to think about, I was going to read something from a pastor, but I don't have the time. I want you to think about your affection for God. Is He just another tool for you to manipulate, a go-to, a device that you can call on when you're, quote, in trouble? Or is he your whole life? Is he, a, is he a scapegoat or is he an out for you? Are you a manipulative, selfish, self-absorbed, self-centered lover? Or do you have real affection for him as Papa, Abba, Father, Dad? Is this your dad? Or is he just another tool? Because that dad, that father loves you loves you enough, loved you enough to send his son to die for you. That's why we don't have to go very far. We just have to read passages like Apostle John wrote. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. I want to show you a video. I know we got, we're tight on time, but I want to show you a, vi- show you a video before we get into um, the ceremony. I'll close in prayer as normal. We'll shut down the video as we were, and then we'll go from there.
Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for bringing us together as family to celebrate your Son and your Word. For these are the pathways to understanding your precious, unerring love for us. We pray that those who hear this message be open to the Spirit's convicting ministry in their lives, that they remain humble to truth and to being set apart for your good works. We pray that those still struggling in this world be set free by the grace and knowledge of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray also for those not able to be with us this morning due to reasons beyond their control. And finally, Father, we pray that we might meet our Lord's great commission on our lives to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that He commanded us. And lo, He is with us always, even to the end of the age. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Okay, stop the video.